Hello, and welcome to I Have Questions, a show about finding enlightenment from even the most mundane interrogatories. I am your host, Brian Watson, and this is episode four of this glorious podcast, my own personal little vanity project. Thank you for joining me at this time, whenever this time happens to be for you. Before we get into today's episode... Here's how you can get in touch with me and with the show. The email address is IHaveQuestionsPodcast at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter at IHaveQ849-22827. Or just look for I Have Questions Podcast in the search feature of your Twitter app, assuming we're not being shadow banned for some reason. The Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash I have questions podcast. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps bring in new listeners as I work towards establishing my cult of personality. The show is hosted on anchor.fm and through their mobile app. You can find us there. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and just about anywhere where you get your podcasts these days. And our reach continues to grow as far as outlets and avenues. This episode is going to be, for lack of a better term, super geeky. So, if you're not into geeky things, and by geeky things, I'm talking comic books and comic book movies. You may want to skip this one. Unless, you know, of course, you are interested in comic books and comic book movies, or you just want to hear what kind of opinions and insights and other mundane mundanities I may have about this particular subject, feel free to listen on. The idea for this show kind of came from a... just random thoughts that I've had. These are thoughts that pop into my head when I'm doing just mundane things. I think I've said mundane like five times so far in this episode, and we're only like two minutes and 30 seconds in. I could be doing the dishes, laundry, spend a lot of time thinking when I'm mowing the yard. Even if I'm listening to podcasts, which is what I usually do when I'm mowing the yard, I'm still thinking about other things. And this kind of came up with while well, doing that. And it's a kind of a straightforward question, and it kind of answers itself. And But at the same time, it's still something to think about, or at least to explore a little bit. And the question pretty much is, Can you have an emotionally powerful scene in a comic book movie? The truth of the matter is you can have an emotionally powerful anything doing anything. All it has to do is, all that particular circumstance has to do is elicit some kind of thought or memory or or regret or all it has to do is plant a thought in your mind that elicits an emotional response. There are people, you know, they listen to, they hear certain songs and it reminds them of a certain place or a certain time or a certain person, good, bad, or otherwise. There are people who get, they're watching a commercial and it's, it could be a completely innocuous commercial. And somehow because of something in that commercial, whether it's a a phrase or the music or the imagery, whatever it is, it, it can elicit an emotional response in someone. So when you say that, when I ask, can you have... Or can you have emotionally powerful scenes in a comic book movie? The answer is, of course, yes, if you're open to it. And even if you're not open to it, you can still have one. And let me give you a couple of examples. In the early 90s, uh, the rock band Pink Floyd was coming out with an album. It would turn out to be their last major studio album. It would be the last album they tour on. And they produced a song, and it was called Keep Talking. And at the beginning of the song, they had a soundbite of Stephen Hawking. And it was Stephen Hawking doing a phone commercial, phone uh, commercial for telephones, uh, 
telephone services, AT&T or Sprint or whatever it was back then. I think it was a British telephone service. And Hawking was talking about the importance, how significant talking was, the development of language was, to the development of human civilization. And one of the members of Pink Floyd, the band was British, they were all British, this particular band member, and I can't remember his name, saw the commercial and listened to what Hawking said, and it's not very long, and he said it moved him to tears. And it inspired him to write the song and also to get the Hawking soundbite to use it as the intro to the song. And they use bits of Hawking in the song, throughout the song. He's part of the chorus, I think, at some point, or, mus or musical interludes at several points in the song. But that's an example of a commercial eliciting an emotional response. Give you a couple of examples that are a little more relevant to the topic at hand. When I was 11 years old, uh, my babysitter, who was 16, 17 years old at the time, my parents every summer, because they both worked, had babysitters that would watch my sister and I. My sister's three years younger than I am. They'd have a babysitter watch us. Well, for three summers through middle school, they had the same girl. They had her, they hired her to watch us for three straight summers. And she, this is the mid to late 80s. So there's no internet. There's no, there's no phones. There's no, well, there's phones, but there's no smartphones or anything like that. There's not, there's no apps. There's no Netflix, no Amazon Prime, none of that. It was a wonder that we had cable and we'd had cable for a while. We were kind of cool because we had cable. We barely had a VCR. So she'd watch us every summer and we would watch television all day. When we weren't swimming, we'd watch television all day. But you'd also watch afternoon cartoons. And back then in the 80s, all the cartoons in the afternoon were based on toys or a toy line. He-Man, Care Bears, Rainbow Bright, GoBots, Transformers, G.I. Joe. Those were all cartoons that started because of toy lines. The cartoon was a marketing campaign for the toy. Because of Star Wars that came out a few years earlier, toy makers figured out that it wasn't enough just to make the toy. The toy had to, the toy had to be part of a story. It had to tell a story. So they started making toys that told stories or that had storylines with them, kind of like comic books. In fact, I could, my memory serves He-Man toys, I think, actually came with a little mini comic that you could read. All the 80s, a lot of the 80s cartoons were based on toy lines, Transformers being one of them. I'm an 11-year-old boy. I'm watching Transformers every day. So if I'm watching Transformers every day, and we only had really had one TV in the house, she was watching Transformers every day. So 1986, the fall of 1986, I'm 11 years old. At that time, a movie, and this was a, it was a giant, it was a 90-minute commercial is what it was, but it was still a movie. Transformers, the movie comes out. I'm an 11-year-old boy. I want to go see this movie because I'm an 11-year-old boy who likes Transformers, so that's what I want to go do. To provide some background on this movie, Transformers the movie was a 90-minute commercial. The whole point of the movie was to sell the next, what they called, generation of Transformers toys. Hasbro, which was the maker of Transformers, had a whole new line of Transformers toys that they were going to put out, and they needed a marketing campaign to do it. Well, they decided the best way to market these new toys, since there was already a cartoon out there was to use that cartoon as the marketing campaign. But instead of just putting it on afternoon cartoons and kind of phasing them in, oh, hey, here's a new character this week, which they had done previously, they decided they're going to go with a big movie. They're going to put it all on the big screen and they're going to have this whole new line of characters that are going to be the main characters of the movie. Well, the only problem with that is, is that what do you do with the existing line of toys? 
How do you integrate them? Hasbro decides we're not going to integrate them. We're going to phase them out. And by phase them out, they mean we're going to kill every character that's already out there or almost every character that's already out there. And how are they going to do that with this big screen movie? Transformers the movie, even though all the violence involves animated robots, is arguably one of the most violent animated movies of the 80s. Now, back in the 80s, there were some pretty violent movies. The Secret of Nim, which I remember, was particularly violent. There was a Disney movie called The Black Cauldron, which I've never seen, but I've heard is pretty freaking creepy. And prior to that, you know, you had, who could forget the killing of Bambi's mother? Or Snow White and the Seven, Seven Dwarves. Hey, the witch tries to kill Snow White, quite deliberately and quite obviously. The, slain, the same with, kind of, with Sleeping Beauty. And I think at the end of that movie, I think the prince slays the evil queen who's turns into the dragon and then the same character that Angelina Jolie would play a few years, played a few years ago uh, to a much different effect. You know, it's not like Pixar. This was you know, before Pixar, before really before the renaissance of Disney animated movies that started, I think, with The Little Mermaid. Anyway, so in Transformers the movie, they decide they're going to kill every toy that they've already got so that, well, if the, those, the old toys are dead, you have no, the kids are not going to have any choice but to play with the new toys. This was very cynical marketing, let me just say. Very 80s. So they make this movie, and 30 minutes into the movie, they decide, or 30 minutes into the movie, or they decide, when, well, let me back up. They decide they're going to kill every character, including the most popular character in the entire toy line, Optimus Prime. Now, the reason why Optimus Prime, who's the leader of one of the good guys in that, in that cartoon and in that toy line, is entirely because of the voice actor who played him in the cartoon. In the cartoon, Optimus Prime is supremely virtuous. And if you've seen the Michael Bay movies, at least the first couple of Michael Bay movies, he's that he's that way. He's supremely virtuous. And in the cartoon, he's voiced by, and in the Michael Bay movies as well, because they realized it was important for that continuity, but also because the voice made the character. The voice, the character was voiced by a voice actor named Peter Cullen. And he does so much, even though, you know, it's a cart, it's a kid's cartoon. So the writing is not going to be spectacular, but they do define Optimus Prime very well. And Peter Cullen gives the character through his voice work, gives the character a soul. Think of Kevin Conroy as Batman in the animated series, or Mark Hamill as the Joker. Peter Cullen is the Optimus Prime, what James Earl Jones is the Darth Vader. That's how important the the voice actor is to the character. So much so that when they might when they do the Michael Bay Transformers movies, the only voice actor that they brought from the original cartoon series to play voices of the the Transformers in those movies was Peter Cullen as Optimus Prime. And like when James Earl Jones, who's not a young man, dies. Star Wars is going to have a hell of a time finding a replacement for James Earl Jones as Darth Vader when Peter Cullen finally you know, slips the mortal coil. If they continue to do Transformers stuff at that time, they're going to have a hard time finding a replacement for him as Optimus Prime. So Transformers the movie comes out. They've decided, Hasbro has cynically decided they're going to kill all the existing characters in an incredibly violent manner. They die in all kinds of ways that are really bad. In fact, one of the ways they actually edited the movie to change how one of the characters got killed. In one scene, one of these Transformers gets drawn and quartered, basically pulled apart. And they decided that that was a, a bit too much. 
So they changed it. Um, instead, he kind of blows up into pieces. He ends up in the same place, basically. It's just how he gets there. But they decide to, they're going to kill off all these characters, including Optimus Prime. Now, granted, he gets, he's given a heroic send-off, but 30 minutes into the movie, Optimus Prime is, dies. He's given a death scene and everything. It's very search for, or it's very Wrath of Khan, excuse me. But he's given a death scene. It's very tragic. It's very sad. There's crying and everything like that. So I'm in the movie theater with my babysitter, and she's brought her future brother-in-law, her boyfriend's boyfriend's younger brother, who's I think a year older than I am. He's 12. She takes him with us to go see this movie. And we're watching the movie. Optimus Prime gets killed. We look, and there's his death scene, and we look over at her, and she is weeping. This 17-year-old girl, teenage girl, who probably had little to no interest in this cartoon show at all, except for the fact that she was forced to watch it because she's babysitting an 11-year-old boy and his sister and whatever friends he had over, they had over that day. And she's crying. And we're just like, oh, dear God. Can we move? Is there is there is there another is there another seat? Is there somewhere else we can go? This is embarrassing. And we gave her help. We gave her a lot of crap for it too. It was like you cried when you cried when Optimus Prime died. She goes, it was very very sad. He's a freaking robot in a freaking cartoon. He's a toy. It was very very sad. So there's an example of an emotional response when you least expect it. Fast forward to 2005. My wife and I are expecting our first child. She's pregnant at the time. And we go to see Peter Jackson's remake of King Kong. Wonderful movie. Loved it from beginning to end. This was Peter Jackson before he got sucked into the Hobbit black hole, where he somehow tries to make three exceptionally long and exceptionally boring movies from a prequel to The Lord of the Rings, which I have not seen any of the Hobbit movies. I've seen Lord of the Rings, own that on DVD, love The Lord of the Rings, have not seen any of the Hobbit movies because of my aversion to prequels. Although I did see the part of The Desolation of Smog where you actually meet Smog, but that's because Benedict Cumberbatch was voicing Smog, and I love all things Cumberbatch. 2005, in the fall of 2005, Peter Jackson's uh, King Kong remake, which is the first movie he made after he finished Lord of the Rings, comes out. Great movie. We go and see it. We get to the end. If you've not ever seen King Kong, you should at least know how it ends. Everybody knows how it ends. King Kong dies at the end of the movie. Regardless of the movie, he always dies. Except for the one that just came out a couple of years ago, Kong Skull Island, which is being tied into the current Godzilla franchise, King Kong always dies at the end. That's the point. Be- you know, the whole beauty killed the beast thing. It's not even an accurate line. Beauty didn't kill the beast. A bunch of guys with machine guns killed the beast. If you saw the 1976 version with uh, Jess- Jeff Bridges and a very young Jessica Lang in it, where Kong dies on top of the, you know, he f- climbs the top of the World Trade Center and gets shot up by uh, Vulcan miniguns from helicopters, that was particularly gruesome. They do a real good job of killing him dead. At the end of Peter Jackson's King Kong, he climbs the Empire State Building. He fights off the biplanes. He loses. He falls off the he falls off the Empire State Building. He falls to his death and he dies. I've seen several different versions of King Kong. I know how the story ends. I look over at my wife when Kong dies and she's crying. And she's crying probably and she's crying for two reasons. The first one she'll say is that she's crying because she's pregnant. It's hormones. The other reason why she's crying is because she didn't know how the story ended. She had never seen King Kong before. She'd never heard about King Kong before. So she didn't know that at the end of the movie, 
Kong always dies. And that's kind of the point, is that this big primitive creature, who's still very loving in a way, destroyed by civilization. It's not beauty that killed the beast, it's civilization. It's a man that killed the beast, unnecessarily and brutally so. It's kind of man's greed that kills the beast. She doesn't know, she didn't know that that's how that was going to end. She, it elicited an emotional response. Now, granted, Peter Jackson does a good job of kind of tugging at the heartstrings in places. He did it in Lord of the Rings, kind of did it at the end of each movie. Peter Jackson knows how to get an emotional response, elicit emotions in his movies. And he does so with the death of Kong and King Kong. He does a really good job of establishing the an emotional one. He does a he and Andy Circus, who portrays motion capture, portrays Kong, does a good job of giving Kong personality and some complexity as far as his emotions and thinking and behavior and that type of thing. And then also a lot of it has to do with Naomi Watts, who plays uh, Anne Darrow. So Jackson knows how to do that stuff, and he it worked on my wife. Prior to that, another interesting little side story. A few months earlier than that, when Revenge of the Sith came out, she, for whatever reason, agrees to go see Revenge of the Sith with me. She saw Phantom Menace with me when it first came out, but we were, I think we had only been dating for a year at that point. So I still had some, some input into what movies we saw. So she saw Phantom Menace with me, wisely skipped Attack of the Clones, but decided to go see Revenge of the Sith with me. And I think it was mostly because she just wanted to see how it ended. She knows that the story's about Darth, how Darth Vader became Darth Vader, and I think she just wanted to see that part. And we get to, we watch Revenge of the Sith, and you see, you know, the destruction of the Jedi, and you see the fight between Obi-Wan and Anakin, which should have been way better and should have been more emotionally impactful than it was. It was basically, it was a dance is what it was. It wasn't a fight, it was a dance. There should have been way more emotional content between those two characters by that point, three movies in, and you didn't get anything from them. Not even at the end where Obi-Wan, don't do it, I've got the high ground and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't until he's cut off both of his legs and his arm and Anakin's like, I hate you. And, and then you get the, the soliloquy from Obi-Wan. Then you get the emotional impact. Anakin's put in the suit. You get the whole, that horrible, no. And then they decide what to do with the, tw and then Padme dies. Again, and I can't decide which is worse. How they kill Padme or the whole no thing from Vader the moment he's in the suit. At some point, I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to do an episode called, Do You Change the End of Movies? Or Do You Change Scenes in Movies? Or Do You Change the Stories in Movies? Do you correct movies that you've seen? At some point, I'm going to do that. And we're probably going to talk about the entire prequel trilogy. You get to Padme's dead. There's the funeral scene. But I look over at my wife. I'm watching Revenge of the Sith. I look over at her. And during the funeral scene on Naboo, she's starting to get a little misty-eyed. And then you get to the scenes where... You see what happens to all the characters. Vader ends up on the Star Destroyer when they're starting to build the Death Star. And you get that guy, that actor who, I don't know how they did it, but he looked an awful lot like Peter Cushing from a distance. Then you get the separation of the twins. Leia goes to Alderaan, which is all nice and sweet and cute and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't really mean anything because you've never seen Alderaan before. Then you get to Tatooine with Obi-Wan Kenobi taking the babe, taking Luke to his aunt and uncle. And that's when you get the music, the horn, and... The, twin, the two sons, and you got Obi-Wan Kenobi standing there watching them and then turning to walk away, knowing what he knows, knowing what's happened. And you get that music and all that together, and that's how the film ends. And then I get a little misty-eyed because at that moment, that whole, that entire scene is to remind you of what is to, chrono chronologically speaking in that saga, of what is supposed to come. 
And it's kind of a Bass Ackwards apology for the prequels. It's kind of Lucas's way of saying, yeah, I know these could have been better. So here, let me give you this little nugget so that you can carry on. Emotionally powerful scenes in comic book movies. Now, there are a lot of there are a lot of movies that try to give you emotionally powerful scenes as their intent. The best ones are the ones that you don't see or where they don't try, or they don't try very hard, or they know or they've got it figured out how or they've figured out how it's going to work. Think the death of Spock at the end of Rathacon. That scene works for a variety of reasons. One, you have William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy at their best. Shatner is dialing it back big time. Wrath of Khan is Shatner's best performance ever as an actor. Okay, from beginning to end, that movie is his best performance. You'll get little glimpses of of good acting elsewhere, but from beginning to end, that film is his best performance. You've got Leonard Nimoy, who's, I mean, the death of Spock was what got him to do that movie. That was the lure, because he thought it was, okay, if they kill the character, then I'll never have to do this again. And then you've got the director, the writer-director, Nicholas Meyer, who's written a really good scene. You've got the music, which is very, very subdued and very understated. It's there kind of as an accent piece. It's not there. It's not melodramatic. It's not overwrought. It's not anything like that. A year later, with Return of the Jedi, you get the same thing with the death of Darth Vader, the removing of the helmet and all that kind of stuff. And you've got this very subdued accent, music that accents the scene. It doesn't overpower the scene, and it's very very restrained. The acting is very restrained in that scene, and that's what makes it work. So there's a way to do it. There are ways, though, not to do it. Think the DC the DC Cinematic Universe or DC Expanded Universe. Think uh, the death of Paul Kent in Man of Steel. Makes absolutely no freaking sense at all. Serves absolutely no purpose in the context of that story. It doesn't. In the original Superman the movie in 1978, the death of Paul Kent meant something. It served a purpose. It was a bookend to the end of the movie, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But in Man of Steel, it makes no sense at all. The same goes with the death of Jor-El in that movie when he's killed by Zod. It makes no sense at all. It serves no purpose, except for kind of to show that Zod's, he's got an anger management issue. But, you know, the first 10 minutes of that movie, you've seen everything else he's done. You get the idea he's got an anger management issue. But Jor-El, the death of Jor-El, Russell Crowe in that movie makes no sense. Then you get to Batman versus Superman, and you get the death of Superman himself at the end of that movie. Spoilers, if you haven't seen the movie from two years ago, Superman dies at the end of that movie. The problem, and when he dies, his death means something. I mean, he dies for a reason. It's a good per- good cause. But you get this big, you know, funeral. You get the two funerals. You get the funeral for Superman, this big kind of state funeral, like he was the president of the United States or something. You get that, and then you get the small funeral in Kansas for Clark Kent, who's actually buried in Kansas. The problem with that, the death of Superman, is, is it's very well done. The, the funerals and everything is very well done, and the end of the movie is very well done, as far as that goes. The problem is that it wasn't earned. Nowhere in either Man of Steel or in Batman vs. Superman is that death earned. So it doesn't mean anything. So they try to manufacture emotion in a movie that really hadn't had that, in a movie that doesn't really have that at all, or if it does have any emotions, they're not positive emotions. And you just, and it's just not, 
And then, of course, you get to Justice League where they completely undermine the ending of B- Batman vs. Superman and all, the whole dirt rising up from the casket thing at the very, very end, which was to give you kind of the Wrath of Khan hope at the end of the of the Wrath of Khan type of thing. And then they completely, I don't know, what, what, what it, I'm assuming is what the rewrites that Joss Whedon did, they completely blew that away, just completely obliterated that, took away any meaning of that whatsoever. So you get a situation like with BVS where they don't, where they try to generate and manufacture emotion and it doesn't work. I'm sure there are, the prequels tried a lot, the Star Wars prequels tried a lot to manufacture emotion. Whereas with, and then in some, sometimes, no, it does work. Spock at Wrath of Khan. Han Solo in Force Awakens. His death, spoiler, he dies, killed by his own son. His death works. His death has meaning. His death has elicits an emotional response because people have gotten to know that character for 30 years watching the, the original trilogy. Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi. Spoiler alert, he dies at the end. Although the interesting thing about his death is that he may not exactly be dead because as we learned in the Star Wars movies, Jedi don't exactly die, die. Except for Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, they, they straight up killed. And then try to walk it back with a stupid line at the end of Revenge of the Sith, which makes no sense at all. Luke Skywalker dies at the end of Last Jedi. Except for he's probably not going to be dead. That one makes sense. That one works. That one's earned. So you get... So it can be done. And from my point of view... Now granted, these are all what I would consider emotionally powerful scenes. And in some places they really work. And in some places they kind of work. So first, I'm going to go back to the beginning of what I would consider the comic book movie age. 40 years ago, 1978, Superman the movie. Now, Superman the movie is silly in some ways. Gene Hackman and Ned Beatty and, you know, the villains are kind of silly. But where it works is you get the revelation of Christopher Reeve as Superman. And he is the bright spot. Besides, you have a director, Richard Donner, who would go on to, um, interestingly enough, would go on to make the Lethal Weapon movies. You have a director, Richard Donner, who has a great deal of respect for the source material. And you have you have a director with a great respect for the source material. You have great casting, a spectacular cast from Marlon Brando, who does a great job in that movie for once, to Gene Hackman, to Ned Beatty, to Glenn Ford, to uh, Margot Kidder as Lois Lane, although she wasn't a big-name actress at that time and probably really wasn't after that. And then you have the spectacular score from John Williams with a theme that every time I hear it, two reasons. Every time I hear it, for one, I think of my son. I don't know why. If I'm Batman, he's Superman. Anyway, every time I hear that theme, I get goosebumps. It's that good. The original theme, the one that's actually played in the movie at the beginning, the opening credits of that first film. I get goosebumps every time. There's just something about it. There have been clones of it, and they're not as good. John Williams' original composition is the best. But you get, in that movie, you get Christopher Reeve as, Christopher Reeve's revelation is Superman. And his, he sets the bar so high that no one has been able to touch, nobody's been able to come close. Not Dean Cain, not Brandon Routh, not Henry Cavill. But I don't think that's really Henry Cavill's fault as much as the material that he's given, or that he's been given. You see that opening scene in Justice League where you got the little kids that are doing a podcast and they're trying to interview Superman after he's just done some heroic deed and you get Henry Cavill smiling and trying to be really nice and answer answer their questions and everything and, and the kids are fumbling over each other. That's very sweet. Very Christopher Reeve-like. And you could see that Henry Cavill, Cavill could be a very good Superman if they let him, if they gave him material to work with. Christopher Reeve in Superman the movie 
and at the, particularly at the end, he does. He plays, you know, he plays the character with incredible charm, very with a sense of humor, especially when he's Clark Kent as, with a sense of humor. There's that scene where he's, you know, he catches the the cat burglar on the side of the building. Something wrong with the elevators, and then going down, and then the guy with the crowbar that hits him on the boat, bad vibrations, that kind of thing. They give Superman a sense of humor. Christopher Reeve gives that character depth. You get to the end of the movie. And the reason why this scene is so powerful to my mind is because of how it's set up. In particular, the scene that I'm talking about is when he discovers Lois Lane and she's dead. Now, what makes that scene incredibly powerful is that right before that, he's saving, trying to save California from falling into the ocean, Lex Luthor's diabolical plan of exploding the San Andreas Fault, which does happen. And then Superman saves California, basically. And as he's doing all these heroic deeds to save California, you know, the bus on the Golden Gate Bridge and the, the rock slide to prevent the flooding and, you know, going into the fault and pushing it back up and that kind of thing. He's doing all that stuff. As he's doing all of that, Lois Lane is dying in an incredibly horrible, slow, painful death. And you get to watch it and it's juxtaposed with what Superman's doing. And he's done his last heroic deed and then he, because he's Superman, he can hear her from far away and he takes off after her. And he gets there, and he finds her car in this crevice, and she's basically, I think she's asphyxiated somehow. I'm not, it's not super clear how she dies, but she dies. And it's horrible when you watch her die, because it's slow. Pulls the car out, pulls the door off. She's in the car, covered completely filthy. The car's full of dirt, and he's not able to save her. And he's sitting there, and he kisses her, and all this kind of thing, because that's what he's always wanted to do, was kiss her because he's been in love with her the entire movie. And the reason that scene is there is is to juxtapose that with what happened earlier in the film when his father, Glenn Ford, died of the heart attack. And you get that line, all those powers, and I couldn't even save him. Which is, you know, if you're to basically condense Superman into one line, that is Superman. That is the burden of Superman. All those powers that he can't save everybody. And that's the burden that he lives with. Batman lives with the burden of the death of his parents and vows never again, knowing full well that he'll knowing full well knowing that he'll never accomplish his mission. Superman's burden is that he can't save everybody. He can't be everywhere and he can't be everything. No matter even though he's essentially a god, he cannot do it all. So he couldn't save his father at the beginning of the movie, he can't save Lois Lane. And in that scene, you get Christopher Reeve's spectacular acting. He's distraught. He's he kisses her. He's he's crying. Superman is crying. And then the rage comes on. And you get an angry god. And he's really angry. And he takes off flying. And the look, the expression on Christopher Reeve's face, that anger, that rage, is almost absolutely authentic. I don't know what Christopher Reeve is thinking about when he's doing that scene, especially given the fact that when he's doing that scene, he's connected to wires and they're probably pulling him and tugging him and getting him to fly because he takes off to fly and you get the look of rage on his face. I don't know what he was thinking about to get that expression, but the expression on his face is very rarely do you see an actor with such incredible rage, an expression of rage in their face and in that. And he decides, you know what? I am, I, you know, I couldn't save my father. I can change this. And then you get the whole spinning the planet backwards thing. But that scene, the death of Lois Lane and his, re- his reaction to the death of Lois Lane, 
even though it's completely within a matter of a minute after that completely reversed, is it's a powerful scene. Jump to the next movie, Superman 2, which they filmed both movies at the same time until Richard Donner got fired from the second movie, and then they basically reshot everything. You get Superman 2. I have a soft spot, and many people do. I have a soft spot for Superman 2 for just two words, or for three words. Kneel before Zod. I use that phrase all the time. As much as, I, as much as humanly possible, I use that phrase. It's just absolutely fun. And Terrence Stamp doesn't is absolutely fun in that role, even though he's dressed up like an aging disco hipster, if there is such a thing. Genuine 70s aging disco hipster. But you do get, you get a couple of emotional scenes in that movie. You get the one scene where Superman's talking to his mother, and he's telling her that he's in love with Lois Lane, and he's willing to give up his powers. And he looks her right in the face and says, Mother, I love her. Powerful scene, sort of. An expression of true love, which is very sweet. But to me, the powerful emotional scene is the, uh, the contrition scene. He's lost his powers. He's decided to spend the rest of his life with Lois Lane. He's, he's immortal. He, he just gets, he gets his butt kicked in that diner. And he finds out, only then does he find out that General Zod has, has arrived. And he knows about Zod. He knows all about Zod. And he realizes that he has to go back. He has to go back and become, that he's made a mistake, that he becomes, has to become Superman again. So he, he gets the walk back to the Fortress of Solitude. And he walks in there and it's dark. It's lifeless. It's like, it's like walking into, it's like Bond walking into his house at the end of Skyfall for the first time. It's just desolate. And he starts talking. Interestingly enough about that movie is that in the, the scene where he gives up his powers, he talks to his mother and his father never makes an appearance in the movie. But when he goes back for the contrition scene, he's talking to his father or he's begging his father for forgiveness. You get the whole says, he tells them basically, you were right. I shouldn't have done this. I need your help. And he gets no answer. And then he turns and he's like, okay, well, you know, and then he turns around and he goes, father, all that kind of stuff. A powerful scene. Christopher Reeve is an amazing actor. He can do that. He can make that scene work. Then you get the emotional part. You get the green crystal that's on the ground, on the floor, and it starts glowing. And that's his answer. And he walks over to it. Again, great acting by Christopher Reeve. And good, a good choice musical selection by the composer using John Williams' score from the previous film. But a good choice selection of music for that scene. He reaches down, he picks up the green crystal, and he's looking right, he's staring into it. And then Crystal brightens and then end of scene. That's an emotionally powerful scene because five minutes later, you've got the return of Superman. The whole general, do you, do, would you care to step outside type of thing. Looking back on that movie, looking back on that fight scene from Superman 2, when I was a kid and I watched that movie on HBO, and this was back when HBO would show the same movie three times a day because they, didn't, they just didn't have the, uh, the catalog. If they're showing Superman 2 three times a day and I'm eight years old, I'm cool with that. I can watch that movie all day long. Looking back on it, though, watching that scene, watching that fight scene again in Metropolis, it's not as impressive as it was when I was eight years old, let me just say. But I digress. Let's jump forward a little bit and talk about my favorite comic book character, which is Batman. I'm a huge Batman fan. I own several, this is how much of a Batman fan I am. I own several of the animated movies. I have the soundtrack to the animated version of The Dark Knight Returns, Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. 
and I listen to it regularly. It's actually good exercise music, especially when you're not motivated and you gotta go run on a treadmill. Jump forward to the early 90s. You get Tim Burton's Batman movies. There's Tim Burton's Batman. The Batman movies really have not had any kind of what I would call emotionally powerful scenes, especially not the first four. Tim Burton doesn't know how, doesn't under, Tim Burton doesn't understand emotions really. He just doesn't. So getting an emotional, getting any kind of an emotionally impactful scene from him from any of his movies is just impossible. Not Batman, not from Batman Returns. Joel Schumacher with those movies, Batman and, or Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Are you freaking kidding me? But what you get at around that time, you get Batman the Animated Series, which for a lot of people is the definitive Batman. I think there's a compelling argument for that. During Batman the Animated Series, they decided to make a full-length movie, and oddly enough, it was not to sell toys, or the purpose of it wasn't to sell toys. They made an animated movie called Mask of the Phantasm, and it was an original movie with an original villain, which had never existed before. The The title of the movie and the villain is kind of a, a misdirection because the real villain of the movie is the Joker, <laughs> voiced by Mark Hamill, who an argument can be made is the definitive Joker. But you've got Kevin Conroy as the voice of Batman and Bruce Wayne. And what basically what the Mask of the Phantasm tells, it kind of tells two stories that are intertwined. There's the current story where Batman's investigating the death of the murder of mobsters by an unknown figure that is never called the phantasm in the movie, but that's what that's it's that's the what's alluded to in the title. And it kind of looks like um, the Grim Reaper meets the ghost of Christmas future is the way they drew the character. Anyway, you've got Batman investigating these mobster deaths. And at the same time, he's having flashbacks to when he was younger, probably in his early 20s. It's the, the flashbacks are about what might have been. He meets a girl. He falls in love. He decides, he decides, after falling in love with her, that he's, he's not going to be Batman. He's happy. He's abandoning the plan. He's abandoning the vow that he made to his parents. And there are two powerful scenes as part of that. There's the scene where he decides he's, he's not going to be Batman. So he goes to his parents' grave. And he, start, and he goes to their grave and he talks to them. And it's in the rain and it's really a, an effective scene. And he's talking about, I didn't plan this. I, I know I gave my word. I can I can give money. I can do other things. I just didn't plan on being happy. And and he looks at every time he looks up at the 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 tombstone. And it's this giant tombstone. It's like eight feet tall. The way they've drawn it. It's way taller than Bruce Wayne is. It's a very gothic grave. And every time they he looks up at the at the grave at the gravestone, lightning flashes. And it flashes the name at him every time. And it's very powerful because you understand the character. You understand what he's going through. You understand the backstory. You know you know why Bruce Wayne has decided to become Batman. You know his origin story. The other powerful scene is the girl that he's in love with, the girl that he's proposed to, that proposed to and that they're going to get married. She runs off and because her father's in trouble and they have to run away. And she gives back the ring. She leaves him a note, gives back the ring, and says, makes up some kind, some kind of contrivance which doesn't indicate at all that she's actually in trouble. She, he's left. Bruce Wayne is left to believe that she's, uh, she's just dumping him. Although he never bothers to figure out why she not only dumped him but completely disappeared at the same time. Plot hole. She's gone. She's given the ring back. The next scene you have is him in the Batcave, and this is a perfect combination of animation and especially music because there are no words really he's in the cave he's putting on the bat costume for the first time he's got the cape on he's got the suit on he's pulling the gloves on and then he reaches over to alfred and alfred gives him the cowl 
and he puts the cowl on. And the music, the theme, the Batman theme for that movie builds. And then he puts the cowl on and he turns around and he looks and he turns around and he looks at Alfred. And Alfred sees him for the first time with the cowl on. You don't see him in the cowl. All you see is the reaction shot of Alfred. Now, granted, this is an animated movie in the style of the animated series. But you see the look on Alfred's face when he sees him in the cowl. And, the, and he just says two words, my God. And then Batman, and then you get the shadow of the cowl and the two white eyes that narrow, which is how they did it for Batman in that show. There were no eyeballs. It was just, you know, the eyes, the white eyes. And then he walks away. And it's an incredibly powerful scene because you've got this heartache. You've got, you know, you've got this, you've got the heartache, but then you've also got the birth of Batman, which is, which has been up to in that, till that movie had never been told in that way before. Batman's kind of like Jesus. You, you see them both when they're children, and then you jump forward to when they're like 33 years old, and you don't really get anything in between. Now, Nolan, with Batman Begins, tries to fill in those gaps a little bit with some flashbacks and stuff, but really you don't get the, you don't get the complete how Batman goes from the death of his parents to becoming the Dark Knight. You don't get that Bruce Wayne chronology that way. But with Nolan, you get several, I would think, are emotionally powerful scenes. You don't get any in really in Batman Begins. And it's clear that Nolan is trying to feel his, he's trying to get comfortable. Get comfortable with that type of movie, which he had not done an action movie up until that point. And he's trying to get comfortable with the character, a character that he doesn't really have a lot of familiarity with. So in Batman Begins, you really don't get much. You did get a couple of scenes that elicit a response from me. One is Bruce Wayne when he goes into the cave for the first time. And he's standing there and he's holding the lamp and then the bats surround him. And he's terrified. And then he stands, slowly stands up. And it's what I call the communion scene. He's commun- He's communed with, he's communing with the bats. And you get Hans Zimmer's thumping anthem for the, the Dark Knight trilogy. Then you get another one toward, toward the end where they're in Arkham Asylum and Katie Holmes, who was horribly miscast in that role, she's been gassed. Batman saved her. The cops have been called. Gary Oldman, who does a great job as Jim Gordon in all three movies, goes inside. Batman's turned something on on this boot and you hear this building shrieking and everything and you get the whole. And Gary Oldman's like, what is that? And Batman just looks down and I can't think of the word. Anyway, he's standing and he just says one word, backup. And then the bats come in. And you get the thumping anthem theme from Hans Zimmer again. And the bats come in and they're attacking the cops and they're busting through the glass and all that stuff. If you're a Batman geek like I am, you love those scenes. They mean something to you because you identify, you know, that it builds the mythos of the character. But jump forward to The Dark Knight. There isn't really so much an emotionally powerful scene in in that movie. There's a bunch of really intense stuff that happens. But the one that really, it's not emotionally powerful, but it does, it definitely elicits a response is the scene at the end with Two-Face. They're in the burned out building where Rachel died. He's got Gordon's family holding him hostage and he's got the gun and he's, he's getting his revenge is what it is. And, And there's, he takes Gordon's son and he puts the gun to his head and he says to Gordon, tell him it's going to be okay. Lie to him. Lie to him. Tell him it's going to be okay. And the reason that scene works is because earlier in the movie, they killed a character you didn't think they were going to, you didn't think they'd kill. Killing Rachel, who's played very well in The Dark Knight by Maggie Gyllenhaal, killing her basically says, all bets are off. No character is safe. 
And then, especially since right before that, you get the the supposed killing of Gordon, which was turned out to be a, a setup. But you get that, and it's clear that they kill her, and you're like, oh, no, they didn't really kill her because they, they're going to do the whole, the, it's just the Jim Gordon thing again. Oh, no, she's dead, dead. And with her death, you suddenly realize it changes the ending of the movie. Suddenly you're like, holy crap, anything can happen. That's what makes the, the, the fairy scene with the Joker and the two fairies and the bombs makes that so effect that scene so effective is because the Joker's done a lot of crazy shit up until that point and he's killed Rachel and he's turned Harvey Dent into a psychopath and anything can happen. So you get to that scene where in the in the burnout building, two faces holding the gun to Gordon's this Jim Gordon's son and saying to him, lie to him. Tell him it's gonna be okay. And you know, he's already shot Batman, because Batman's there and he's already shot him. And you're like Holy crap. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if he's going to kill the kid or if he's going to kill himself or if he's going to kill Gordon or anything. But and and it really builds and it's a very intense scene. It's you know because you don't know what's going to happen because all bets are off. And of course what really happens is Batman saves the day, Two-Face dies, and then they you know they establish the cover up that Batman killed him. They preserve Harvey Dent's purity basically that batman went went bad he killed harvey dent and now they're going to go after him and then you get that wonderful montage of with and the montage with gordon's soliloquy about you know the dark knight which is kind of emotionally powerful because it basically that montage basically destroys everything that's happened in the last two movies and then of course you get the dark knight rises which kind of completely undermines how the dark knight ended by jumping forward eight years foolishly it was completely unnecessary for them to do that. You could have done the whole Bane story. I think The Dark Knight Rises would have been a much better movie if they had done, even if you get rid of the Joker, if you had just moved it forward a year and most of the movie is about the hunt for Batman, well, at the same time Bane comes in and, you know, you were really born in the darkness. But you get to The Dark Knight Rises and you get really the only emotionally powerful scene in that movie is the end at the very end where Batman's taken the bomb and he's flown off into the out into the ocean or the lake or whatever whatever that large body of water is next to Gotham City and he flies off and he's sitting there he's been stabbed and he's flying off to save the day plane copter thingy whatever it is and you get that look and the music changes and it's kind of it starts out triumphant and then it gets changes to the music that the play that's played every time you know he thinks about his parents the bomb goes off it looks like Batman's dead and everybody in life goes on. There's the funeral for Bruce Wayne where Alfred reappears and apologizes to his dead parents for not protecting him, not saving him. Everything with jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt as John John Blake, who's actually Robin, who's actually not Robin. You get that scene, that montage where you know you find out what happens to Wayne Manor. It gets donated and you find out that... Bruce Wayne left something for John Blake. Joseph Gordon let it, let it, and then Gordon. They've, they, you know, they. Gordon's there for the unveiling of the statue of Batman in City Hall or whatever, and he's not even looking at it. He's just thinking about Batman, and it, the the montage starts to build. You get Gordon on the roof of police headquarters, and he looks over at the light, which had been destroyed at the end of the Dark Knight by Gordon and was burnt out still when earlier in the movie and Gordon looks over at it and it's been restored and then you get Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Blake going hiking for lack of a better term because he's been given these coordinates of where to go and you get 
Lucius Fox and Morgan Freeman in the Wayne Enterprises building, and they're looking at another version of the of the Batcopter plane thing, whatever you want to call it. And you find out that Bruce Wayne fixed the autopilot, which is what kept which is what kept Batman from bailing out. And then you realize that Nolan is starting to what Nolan is setting up because Nolan's all the other movies haven't really been happy endings. And you realize that Nolan is going to as 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 he can try to give you a happy ending. Gordon Levitt goes underneath a waterfall. Then you realize, holy crap, he's in the Batcave. Or you know where, he, as soon as he goes into the waterfall, you're reminded of Batman Begins. Alfred going to someplace in Europe, which he talks about at the, earlier in the movie, he looks over and the, and the music builds. And this is the music is perfect in this scene. The music starts to build. You're starting to get the building of the Batman theme. And Alfred looks over, and he looks over and he sees Bruce Wayne staring right at him from another table across the room just staring at each other and Bruce Wayne just smiles and nods once. Alfred gets up and walks away and you're like, holy crap, he lived. And then Gordon Levitt walks, starts walking into, and you realize he's in the Batcave and he walks into the Batcave and then this thing lifts up, this platform lifts up, the music crescendos and that's how the movie ends. Batman lives on. Bruce Wayne gets to have a normal life. Everybody lives happily ever after. Batman lives on. Batman is immortal. You get that, you know, emotionally satisfying ending to that trilogy, even though with The Dark Knight Rises, it took you two and a half hours to get there. Let's talk about the X-Men movies. The X-Men movies tried, especially with the first, the Brian Singer films have tried to be emotionally impact powerful because Brian Singer understood the metaphor, understood what the X-Men represented in as far as the real world goes. He understood that and he took that. I mean, the first scene in the first X-Men movie is an incredibly powerful scene, which is Magneto in the concentration camp when he's a teenager. You know, the bending of the fence and all that kind of stuff. An incredibly powerful scene because it's because it works on so many different levels. The Holocaust in particular, this is a, you know, I think the X-Men, first X-Men movie came out in 2000, which is about six or seven years after Schindler's, Schindler's List. And it's does a very, it, it, so it's very evocative. And it also, but that scene also, what that scene does is it establishes the motivations of Magneto, played wonderfully by Ian McKellen throughout those movies. Then you get to X2, the sequel, X-Men United, and you get to the end, the death of Jean Grey. It doesn't give me the feels, not as much as another X-Men movie that we'll talk about here in a second did, but it's a very emotionally impactful movie because it's long and drawn out. The scene is drawn out. It's not like a sudden thing. It's very deliberate what she's doing and what she's planning to do. And she, you know, she's, she's able to say her goodbyes telepathically through Patrick Stewart, who is largely wasted in those movies, I, I feel. She lifts the plane up. She's able to stop the water. She lifts the plane up. You know, it's the setup of the Phoenix. If you know your X-Men comics and you know what happens to Jean Grey. And what makes that scene somewhat powerful is not so much her death as much as it is the reaction of Wolverine and, and Cyclops to her death. On the plane, you get Hugh Jackman almost crying, and you get James Marsden, who's barely in that movie at all. You get an incredible, you get a, you know, you get an emotional range out of him. However, the pinnacle of, and this might be the pinnacle of comic book emotional, emotionally powerful scenes, is Logan. If you haven't seen Logan, the, the, what makes Logan work is that it is the culmination of all of, of, all of, all of Hugh Jackman's other performances as Wolverine. Logan doesn't work without with Hugh Jack without Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine in seven out of the seven other movies. It only works because of that. Because you get because of the development that Hugh Jackman how the Hugh Jackman develops that character. 
Logan doesn't work without that. Logan doesn't work without Patrick Stewart playing Charles Xavier at least four other times. The first three X-Men movies, Days of Future Past. And you get from those two actors, and honestly, they both should have been nominated for Oscars. They really should have. Patrick Stewart should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Hugh Jackman should have been nominated for Best Actor especially when it was going to be the last time that those two actors were going to play those characters. You get the shot. If you haven't seen Logan, I'm going to spoil it a little bit. All right. Powerful scene where they're in the farmhouse. Charles Xavier's in the farmhouse. He's in bed. He's basically crippled at this point. He's got a, a form of mutant dementia that makes him exceptionally dangerous because he can't control his power. Xavier is arguably the most powerful mutant in all of the X-Men. Uh, because of what he can do with his mind. Imagine having that power, but having absolutely no control over it, losing control over it and what it could do to everyone around you. They're in the farmhouse about two thirds of the way through the movie. This is a very emotionally damaged because he knows what he's done because he lost control. It's alluded to, he killed a whole lot of people and he killed a whole lot of mutants because of this mutant version of Alzheimer's for lack of a better term. He's lying in bed in this farmhouse where they're staying the night. He thinks he's talking to Logan and he's talking about how this has been one of the best days of his life ever and how happy he is. And it's an exceptionally well-performed scene. It's well-written, it's well-acted, and it ends horribly, tragically, and you don't see it coming. It's a shock. Then you get to the end of Logan. Logan dies at the end of the movie. A character that you thought was indestructible, that could not die, but who, who is, throughout the course of that movie, slowly dying on his own. At the end of the movie, he has saved all of these kids who are mutants themselves, one of whom is very, very much like him. And he saved them. He pays the price, and he's dying. He's got this mortal wound. He's slowly dying. And you get that moment of realization from him of something that he's never experienced before. He's, by that point, Wolverine is largely believed to be 150 years old by the time that he dies. And he, you get that wonderful moment when he realizes that he is, in fact, dying. And he's he recognizes and the feeling of dying. And it's revelatory to him. He's not afraid. He's not anguished about it. He's, he's at peace. He, he feels the peace, the serenity that comes with death, feeling a piece of serenity that he's never had before. And Jackman plays it perfectly. And he dies. And this little girl who's a lot like him, X-23, I can't remember what her name was in the movie. I have to watch Logan again. She's there with him when he dies. And she's crying and she doesn't want him to die. And she, he tells her to, to go, to go on, live. And then he dies. I saw this, I saw Logan in the theater. All I can say is, thank God I was by myself. It was like when I watched E.T. for the first time when I was seven years old. I mean, it was that bad. An incredibly powerful scene. Incredibly powerful. And it's what that scene, along with the rest of the movie, is what makes Logan arguably the best comic book movie ever. Because it it goes, it goes there. It goes to those depths. And it talks about, deals with family, guilt, aging, death. It goes there and it deals with those things in a very powerful way. While at the same time, Logan is R-rated. Don't take your kids to see Logan, okay? It's an R-rated movie and it's very it's there for a reason. Lots of language, an incredible amount of bloody violence. You finally get to see what those claw what what those claws can actually do. But you get the death of Wolverine, and it's just an incredibly powerful scene. 
And again, the only reason that scene works is because Hugh Jackman's played Wolverine seven other times in seven other movies. And he has explored with the depth of that character. And by the time you get to Logan, it works. The Marvel Cinematic Universe up until Infinity War. And I'm not going to cover, I'm not going to talk about Infinity War because I'm still processing Infinity War. I went and saw it in the theater about two weeks after it came out. Within the first five minutes of the movie, I was shocked. And I was shocked and by and I just it kept through for two and a half hours until the very end. And you realize how it ends. I missed the end credits scene. I missed that. I didn't stay in the theater to watch it. I, I was like, I'm waiting for it. And I'm like, okay, oh, I don't think they're going to do one. Turns out they did one. I'm not going to talk about Infinity War because I'm still processing Infinity War. I'll just say, and I've said it many times, damn. Just damn. And again, the only reason Infinity War works is because there have been 18 Marvel movies prior to that in the last 10 years. If you don't do those 18 movies and you don't do them well, Infinity War means nothing. Just absolutely nothing. But the way that movie ends is just heartbreaking. It breaks your heart because you get this, you think you get this victory and then it's taken away with a snap of fingers. But prior to Infinity War, not a lot of emotionally powerful scenes or powerful, emotionally powerful moments to look at. Certainly not in the first three Iron Man movies. Not really in Thor or Thor the Dark World. Ugh. Oddly enough, if Thor the Dark World's on TV, I don't own it on DVD, but if it's on TV, I'll stop and watch it because it's probably still better than most of the crap that's on at the same time on cable anyway. But not in the first two Thor movies. Captain America, the first Avenger, not so much. And as much as I love the Winter Soldier, not really an emotionally powerful scene in that movie. There are some scenes, though, that do give me the feels, particularly when you get to the Avengers, the first one in 2012, with Loki as the villain and the, and the Jatari invasion and the Battle of New York. And it's the one, it's one scene in particular, and it's toward the end, and it's, for lack of a better term, it's the money shot of the movie. It's the shot that everybody who's watched all those Marvel movies up to that point has been waiting for. It's, if you're a comic book fan, it's the, scene, it's the shot that you've been waiting for. It's in the battle, middle of the Battle of New York. The battle's started, and they're all standing on the ground except for Iron Man, who's got this giant space monster chasing him. Banner shows up on the motorcycle. Iron Man's bringing the giant space monster toward them, and the music starts to build as Banner starts walking away from them toward the space monster. And Captain America says, Dr. Banner, now might be a good time for you to get angry. And the music continues to build. And Banner looks back at him and goes, that's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. And he turns into the Hulk right then and there on cue. He has control over it. The space monster is coming toward him. He turns into the Hulk. He punches the space monster, stops it dead at its tracks. Iron Man blows up the space monster. And then the theme of the Avengers theme crescendos. Then you get the money shot, the 360 degree camera shot of all the Avengers getting ready to go to battle. They're all standing in a circle and they're all getting ready to go to battle. And you got the theme crescendoing. Gives me the feels every time. It's like I'm an 11-year-old boy again. It's like um, in Return of the Jedi when Luke Skywalker, the first time Luke Skywalker holds the green lightsaber. You know, he jumps off the diving board, does the backflip, grabs the lightsaber out of the air, and it turns on, and the Star Wars theme crescendos at the whole time, and it turns on, and it's green, and you're like, holy shit. And why that, and that scene gives me feels because it's well-written. It's well-directed by Joss Whedon. 
the music is perfect. Joss Whedon knows how to Joss Whedon knows how to write a scene, and he knows what the purpose of that scene is. And that scene serves multiple functions. One, it gives you the Avengers united, which for the most of the movie they've been bickering and are at each other's throats, or just basically not. They're not a team, and in that moment, you get them as a team. You get the moment with Banner, which that scene, I'm always angry, and he has control over the Hulk or being able to turn into the Hulk, is a juxtaposition to the scene, the last scene where you saw Banner before he went crazy as the Hulk, where he talks about how he tried to kill himself. I put a bullet in my mouth, and the other guy spat it out. And it also, that scene also works because that's the first time that Banner acknowledges that he and the Hulk are the same person. They're the same thing. Throughout that movie, he continually refers to the Hulk as the other guy. And in that moment, he, he accepts that he is the Hulk, which goes into Age of Ultron, where he realizes that he is the Hulk, and yeah, that's a bad thing. Or to his mind, it's a bad thing. You get the scene, there is you know, there is a little bit of that in Age of Ultron. You get the scene inside the, the church where they're fighting off all the robots and the, the uh, army of robots trying to get to the thing in the middle. And you get all of them, you know, and it's, you know, that's the money shot of that movie is that it's all of them fighting in that church. You get the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, which have their emotional moments. You get the death of Peter, Peter Quill's mother, the first five minutes of the movie. She's there. She's dying. You got this kid. He's, he's not, he doesn't have exactly the most supportive family system around him at that moment. You know, nobody's really understanding. They're just kind of thinking about themselves and he's going, he's being made to go see his mother who's dying and she dies right then and there. Couple that with the music that he's listening to in the hallway with the headphones on prior to that. And then of course that juxtaposed to the end when he's holding on to the infinity stone and he's turning purple and Gamora says, take my hand. And he looks over and he sees his mother and all that kind of stuff. And, he's, and, all that, and then, you know, they're all holding hands and they've been bickering. It's, it's the Avengers money shot all over again, except for it's the Guardians of the Galaxy. And then the volume two, you get the death of Yondo, which it works, but it's not an incredibly emotionally powerful scene to my mind. Then you get to Civil War, Captain America's Civil War. There's just so many wonderful things in Civil War you get the introduction of Black Panther. And what's amazing about, you get the introduction of Black Panther, you get the introduction of Spider-Man. And what's amazing is that for as little screen time as they have in that movie, you get a character arc for them. Those characters are defined. You get Tom Holland's version of Spider-Man. You get Chadwick Boseman's T'Challa. They're defined. Those characters are established in that movie so that when you get Spider-Man Homecoming, which is a really, really good movie and has an incredibly tense scene in it where Michael Keaton and Tom Holland are in the car and Michael Keaton has figured out that Tom Holland is Spider-Man and they've been fighting each other the whole movie, having no idea who they, who each other or who they, who each other were. Tom Holland knew who Michael Keaton was, but Michael Keaton, Michael Keaton didn't know that Tom Holland was Spider-Man. And in that car ride, prom drive, Michael Keaton figures it out. And then you get this wonderfully tense scene with them that's where there's all kinds of subtext. And it's just a wonderful scene, well played between the two actors. In Civil War, you get T'Challa as a fully defined character. You get an arc for that character, although he's hardly in the movie, from the death of his father to the scene with Baron Zemo at the end. And you get an arc for that character that sets him up for Black Panther that came out earlier this year. And you get Spider-Man, well, a fully formed character arc for Spider-Man that sets up, establishes his relationship with Iron Man, with Tony Stark, that sets up for Spider-Man Homecoming. 
you get the continuation of the Winter Soldier, Winter Soldier storyline and how that affects everything in the movie, how what, how Age of Ultron affects what happens in that movie. And then you also get, you get the spectacular airport fight with all of the Avengers and then some, which you would think would be the culmination of the movie, which would be the third act, the culmination of the film, the end. You get that fight and the movie ends, except for it doesn't. Instead, you get this huge fight between all of these characters and it's just spectacular. It's well choreographed. It's just, it's fun. It might be the funnest, funnest scene in a comic book movie ever. It's just fun to watch it from beginning to end. It's just so exciting. Another scene that I find incredibly exciting is in Age of Ultron, where you got the Hulk versus the Hulkbuster in that African city. In Civil War, you get the airport fight, and the airport fight ends, and Captain America and the Winter Soldier, Bucky, they get away. And they're going off to stop Baron Zemo. And then you get Tony Stark, who realizes that this whole thing's been a setup, that this whole thing's been a setup by Baron Zemo, and he goes off to Russia to help Cap and Bucky, thinking that Zemo's got a plan that he doesn't actually have. If you haven't seen Winter Soldier, or not Winter Soldier, if you haven't seen Civil War, I'm going to spoil some things for you. The, what makes Civil War work is the same way Infinity War works. Civil War takes what happened in Age of Ultron, what happened in Winter Soldier, what happened in the first Iron Man movies where what happened with Tony Stark and his parents and his father in particular, the his, that relationship that he has that's alluded to in those movies. It takes all of that. Um, what happened in the first two Captain America movies, what happened in Age of Ultron, you know, what happened in Avengers, it builds on, it takes advantage of, of all of those things, the relationship between Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, and you get to what happens in Russia. And I'm going to spoil some things here, okay? In particular, the revelation, which is alluded to in kind of flashback sequences throughout the movie of the Winter Soldier killing somebody on a desolate road, causing a car accident, and then killing somebody on a desolate road. And at the end of the movie, Zemo shows the video, which he's been trying to find. He's been trying to find information about this event. He knows what it is, but he wants to find information about it. And he shows, he finds what he's looking for, footage, security camera footage of Winter Soldier killing these people on this desolate road. And he shows it to Tony Stark, and it's the murder of Tony Stark's parents. The Winter Soldier, Bucky, Captain America's best friend, killing Tony Stark's parents and killing them in a particularly brutal manner. Tony Stark watches the video, and it's an incredibly powerful scene. It's so well acted, particularly by Robert Downey Jr., who's been playing Tony Stark for like seven movies up to that point. This is the payoff of playing that character in all those other films, is this scene. And you see the look on his face as he's watching it, and the realization. And then he looks at Captain America, and you've got Chris Evans does a great job in that scene as well, of dread, the increasing dread. Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr. looks at him and goes, did you know? You get an answer, which I don't understand where how that occurs because maybe I missed it, but I don't get any indication. And maybe it's in Winter Soldier that there's that indication. I don't know how Steve Rogers knows, Captain America knows, that, previ that previously knew that Bucky killed Tony Stark's parents. I don't know where that revelation comes from. Stark looks at Captain America and says, did you know? And Captain America says, yeah, I did know. At that point, Captain America is like, he, this wasn't of his own free will. He was controlled. You know, it's not his fault. And Tony Stark just says, I don't care. He killed my mom. And then it's, and then the battle. You have the spectacular airport fight with all of these superheroes fighting each other. And that's supposed to be the culmination of the movie. And instead, what you get is this incredibly personal fight between these three characters. 
and then you get up to that kind of dam structure concrete enclosure where the final fight occurs and they're really trying to kill each other and it's brutal it's a brutal fight and they're doing everything they can and it's just brutal you got that scene that showed up in the trailer where you've got iron man on his knees and he's fighting off both bucky and captain america at the same time and they're just beating each other to death winter soldier bucky loses his metal arm Captain America's kicking Iron Man's ass and then Iron Man figures out how to fight back and all this kind of stuff. And they're really trying to kill each other. And all this, all this is going on. You get that moving scene between Zemo and T'Challa where T'Challa shows how, how great of a character he is because he gives up his, his quest for vengeance, realizing that this whole thing has been, that he's been wrong about this whole thing. And then not only that, but he saves, he spares, he saves Zemo's life because that's Zemo's punishment is to live. He has to go on living. But you get this incredible fight between these three characters. You get the dropping, the abandoning, the, the, the symbolic shot of Captain America abandoning his shield. Which, I have a theory about that shield in regards to the next Avengers movie. The follow-up to Infinity War. Because in Infinity War, he never has that shield. So I have a theory about that. But I'll keep it to myself. To me, that fight between those three characters is incredibly emotionally powerful because of everything that's happened in all those movies up to that point. And what's happened between those two characters and what's happened in that film. The, uh, the, cont- the culmination of the, the ideological differences between Stark and the motivations behind those ideological differences between Stark and Captain Rogers. I love the ending of Civil War because it's so, because it's an incredibly intimate fight. It's what the duel between Obi-Wan and Anakin should have been at the re- in Revenge of the Sith. It should have been an intimate battle between two people who love each other and have to kill each other for it, or want to kill each other. Covered a lot of ground, went really, really long on this one. As always, your comments, questions, criticisms, or concerns are always appreciated. However you feel compelled to express them, the email address is IHaveQuestionsPodcast at gmail.com. I'm looking for any feedback of any kind. I'm also looking for show topics. Are there questions that you would like me to look into or would you like me to try to answer or explain or or at least just ruminate on? The email address is I have questions podcast at gmail.com. The Twitter address is I have at I have Q U 849-22827. Or you can just look up I have questions podcast on the search function of your Twitter app. Should take you right to us or to me. And then, of course, the Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash I have questions podcast. Again, any reviews or ratings that you can give for the show with whichever means of podcast acquisition that you use would be greatly appreciated. This has been episode four of I Have Questions. I am Brian Watson. Thank you very much. 